Welcome, 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 everyone. You are tuned into The Element here on News Talk Saga 960 AM. We are your girls, Lemon and Gerjot, bringing to you another episode, another week in quarantine, and we're hoping you guys are all well. Right now, we have an exciting show lined up for you today. We have uh, three amazing people from, like, I guess, all over the world, you can say. Two folks out of California and uh, one from uh, out in the UK. And we're going to be talking about abolition. Joining us, we have Dr. Deep Singh, who is an abolitionist educator and organizer in Los Angeles. He is a scholar of Sikh text and his book about by Gurdasji is called Drinking from Love's Cup. And we also have in Navjot Kaur, who is a PhD student in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society in California. She studies the racialization and criminalization of different spaces across time in relation to racial and state violence. You can find her at, um, at Bike the Wind on uh, Instagram as well. Shamshir Singh is also joining us all the way from the UK. He is a co-founder of the National Sikh Youth Federation and an influential, influential Sikh activist. His work centers on Sikh being and Khalistan. Shamshir Singh works to build solidarity with racialized communities and to create space for Sikh expression, centering on Sikh sovereignty and Sikh resistance, pushing back against the erasure of Khalistan and its martyrs. Shamshir Singh is currently, currently works as program director for the newly established Khalistan Center, which is dedicated to supporting and cultivating Gurmuth-driven leadership. Um, and so thank you guys all for being here. We appreciate you. And we're super excited to get into this conversation. How are you guys doing today? I'm, I'm good. I'm chilling. I'm doing well. Yeah, thank you all for the invite. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm doing good as well. Well, thank you for being here. And um, we wanted to talk about it, but we, we use the term abolition a lot. We've used it on our show a lot. I feel like there's a lot of conversations going on, especially with, you know, uh, the BLM conversations uh, happening this summer, the conversation around abolition was happening. And I think a lot of people are confused around what abolition means, what defunding the police means, and what the entire kind of premise of that is. Um, so before we kind of like jump into it, like what, what, uh, what is the definition of abolition and, and what does it mean to you? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not going to start with a definition. I'm just going to start with something a little bit deeper and emo more emotional, because for me, abolition is about emotions and abolition is about, you know, the the disgust that I feel in for living in a, a world where we use punishment, you know, as as policy. Um, so for me, abolition is about imagination. Abolition is about imagining new ways that we could come together um, and and replace the existing systems that we have. Yeah, thank thank you for that. Uh, uh, Navjot, how about your, yourself? Yeah, I think uh, um, Deep is absolutely right that abolition is really about rebuilding and reimagining a different way of life, um, relating to each other, relating to our communities, to our societies. So oftentimes, like abolition, like folks think of anarchy and like, you know, these types of things. And um, I think really the, the center of this type of movement is really love and care for each other. And that often gets lost in these kind of mainstream representations of abolition and like this type of liberation work. Um, so Angela Davis says something, I'm just going to quote her. She says, abolitionist approaches ask us to enlarge our field of vision so that rather than focusing on 
uh, my optically on the problematic institution and asking what needs to be changed about that institution, we raise radical questions about the organization of the larger society. And I think for me, like, I mean, Angela Davis is someone who I turn to in terms of, of abolition work and, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, but I think reimagination and, and building communities like that is absolutely essential to, to abolition. Yeah, same. I, I echo both the uh, deep and abjured sentiments. It's about centering um, our liberation. It's about centering justice and equality um, and reimagining uh, the world as we know it. I just want to kind of go off what you guys were saying is how it's a place, you know, about recentering and um, refocusing. And I think the a big hurdle and a big barrier a lot of people face is that they don't recognize where the, where it started, you know, how it started, what it's centered around, essentially. Um, can any of you guys kind of speak on that so that the listeners that are listening can kind of understand that the system that's in place right now wasn't necessarily how we perceive it to be now? Yeah, I guess I could take it on. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to think about like histories of violence, like, okay, I can only speak for the U.S. context, so I apologize to other listeners, but in the U.S., you know, policing comes out of slave patrols. And also when we think about abolition, we have to think about who we're centering in that conversation, right? And we have to think about the most marginalized folks. Um, who is the state violence impacting the most? And, and in the US and, and other parts of the world, it's black folks. So we can't divorce what's happening, you know, what happened this summer, what continues to happen from kind of the foundation of this country. And that goes to that starts with slavery, that starts with slave patrols and things of that sort was kind of where policing as an institution was built. But it also connects to the ways in which, you know, indigenous folks were, um, you know, pushed out, killed, murdered for this land. Right. So we really have to, to trace this back um, centuries. And I think a large part of our issue in thinking about abolition is, is sometimes we don't learn these histories or we don't understand just how how violent they were. Um, and that's a part of the struggle, right? Uh, it's a part of how we got to educate ourselves and, and really learn our histories. And that goes for, for the histories of, of the places that we are living in, right? So if I live in the US, if I'm living in Los Angeles, it's really important for me to know um, what the sand looked like before um, and connect with, with organizing work here and also just recognize that, you know, what it means to live on the settler colonial state. Yeah, and like, you know, this, this movement grows out of like watching and the experience of being within these systems of oppression. Um, and it comes from a deep understanding of what those systems actually are, what they were set up to do. Um, and it comes from that, the patience of enduring um, oppression on a daily basis. Uh, and it comes out of strategizing ways to be subversive and and to um, address the, the very conditions that seek to enslave us. So it's not a reactionary thing. It's not born in reaction to, um, uh, to those circumstances. It's born out of a fundamental philosophical vision of reimagining um, the terms of engagement um, and really centering the possibility of us flourishing together and connecting our struggles together. And it's, it's born out of um, a really radical sense of solidarity um, of our shared humanity and our shared struggle. And that's one of the, the key ideas that really appeals to me and connects to me as a Sikh, because those are ideas that um, 
you know, I've grown up around like from from uh, a, a child, right? Like this is what what we're taught about the way the world should be. I think that's beautiful that you say that because I just want to say that you guys keep touching on and you keep mentioning that it's about flourishing a community together, growing together. Whereas right now it's separating people from the community. You know, it's not about uh, flourishment of community. It's about separation and that separation then in, in, in that lies that divide that that's being created. So therefore community isn't even, isn't even anything a part of the foundation of the system uh, and policing as it is. But, but that's precisely the job of the police, right? The, the, the job of the police is to keep us separated from each other. Um, that might sound a little too radical for some folks, but let me just tell you, what is the first thing that people say is going to go wrong when, if the police are, you know, whatever, they're worried about their private property. They're not worried that, you know, their you know their community is not going to flourish they're not worried that their that their kids you know will now be a little bit safer if they're brown or black right they're worried that their property is going to be in danger and so the job of the police is to um keep us individualized because it is our individualized selves in these systems in these western systems that can own property right it's really hard to get a trust you know, and, and, and you have to get a lawyer for that and you have to sign all these documents that people say that we're not individuals and we're going to hold a piece of property in common, right? But the whole damn systems that we're talking about, um, they're built on possession for some people and dispossession for others. And the dispossessors are the police. As we can see, as people are going to be evicted after COVID-19, it's going to be sheriffs, it's going to be police. And it is, I'm sorry, I'm not even talking about it's going to be. It is these people who are pulling poor people out of houses and dumping them out under the street. So um, if anything, the police are antithetical to community. Just, just one thing to add is um, to, to Deep's point is that I'm sure we'll get to this at some point in our conversation, but it's really important to think about the different anti-Blackness like within our Punjabi Sikh communities as well. So if we're speaking about abolition and we think about um, what kind of world we want and liberation we want, we really have to think about um, the kind of anti-Blackness that undergirds this issue. So I just wanted to name that early in the conversation instead of later, like it's, it's a really important part that we um, think about how we may be complicit um, in this kind of anti-Blackness and, and the, the way that folks are policed, like all these sorts of things. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to that later, but I think it's just important to, to say that out loud before we move on. And yeah, no, thank thank you for for mentioning that because that's what we're going to be basing this like you know conversation and developing into like the the role that six kind of you know diasporic six play within this because I feel like our experience with police um, in Punjab is radically different from how we view them here in I guess like the Western world. Um, and and I do want to talk about like uh, Deep, you mentioned something about like you know police being uh, anti ethical um, or uh, like, I guess, like, you know, um, not ethical. I, I can't find the word. Apparently, you know, my, my brain is mush right now. But um, basically, um, I, and I wanted to mention that I wanted to mention the experience that I had. The police themselves know that they are harmful beings. They know that their presence is very, um, it, 
is they have a very harming presence. And I saw that the summer at the pro like a couple of protests that happened downtown Toronto, they were hiding two blocks away with their horses and, you know, with their bikes or whatever, because they knew that if their presence had showed up at the protest, they were, their presence itself is um, an indication of violence. And, you know, and so they, they're, they're aware of their actions. They're aware of what they kind of bring to the table and, and they kind of like place themselves uh, separately from that. And I do want to talk about the system of, of policing in terms of like how we kind of, how do we view it here versus how we view it back home? Like there's such a huge difference. And um, I'm sharing a couple of conversations we had. You mentioned that um, there's actual recruitment for six and, 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 you know, in the Western world and in the UK, and they've partnered up with like, you know, Gurdwaras and institutions, whereas like, you know, in Punjab back home, like I, I just speaking from my experience and the experience of my parents and what I have been told is that like, no one likes the police officers there. So like, why do you think that there, there's this um, strong, like the, the, there's this, such a difference in how we view police in, in both worlds and it's not like the police in the western world and in the diaspora has served us if we look at the history of racism not only against you know black folks and indigenous folks but even like sick folks right like they they were never here to serve us originally yeah i, I guess like i mean not in, uh, in punjab not only do they not like the police they they fear the police like you know according to surveys that you know that have taken place there the people from Punjab, the Sikh community is um, the one minority community that fears the police the most out of all minority communities. Like there's this hyper awareness of um, the violence that the police inflict. Uh, but here, I guess, especially in the UK, um, there's this like, there's this a deep kind of buy into this view that like the British are more civilized, that they're more sensible, they're more reasonable. Um, so that kind of like, knowledge of what the police is doesn't really necessarily translate over here to the UK. So the police here are viewed as like, you know, um, not corrupt and being more of a benevolent force. Uh, and therefore you see recruitment practices in Gurdwari where you see like, you know, police setting up stalls to recruit young Sikhs to join the police, to join the military. Um, and, you know, the, the foundation of uh, that kind of approach is this colonial myth of six being a model minority that, you know, they're the, a martial race. So, you know, this recruitment practice, this, um, this view is underpinned by um, colonial violence. Um, and, and that's like a, a really kind of difficult dynamic to change because um, ideas of pride of being a Sikh are tied up to, um, you know, joining the military and joining the police and, and also like the ideas of um, that are really, really valuable to Sikhs, which is we want to serve um, our communities, we want to serve humanities. Um, those ideas are then weaponized and the police becomes the vehicle through which we're going to now serve the community. Um, but as we know, like the, the police isn't an institution that's going to be reformed from within. And the, the function that they carry out is racist. Um, they are uh, inherently violent um, and they exist to protect property. They exist to protect capital. Um, and that like critique uh, um, isn't like isn't part of our discourse, um, at least so much as in the UK. It hasn't um, penetrated, um, you know, sick organizations. Um, you know, and I, I, there is an awareness within Sikh organizations and, you know, the bodies that claim to represent the community. 
but there is also a huge reluctance to actually frame any kind of critical conversation of the police um, and again that like fear um, you know uh, sorry that like uh, inability is connected to fear is connected to this idea and, and I've heard it vocalized in, you know in private community conversations that we can't criticize the police um, you know because we we kind of we can't pick this fight right now um, and and some of the elders are even more clear in you know in uh, how they kind of vocalize that they'll say um, you know if we there's this idea that if we criticize Britain maybe they're going to kick us out maybe we won't, we won't have a place here so that fear is what's kind of holding together this like you know essentially an abusive relationship between six and and uh, the state unfortunately though that the I feel like that fear is valid in a sense because when you do criticize or if you do even us having this conversation i am pretty sure we're going to get quite a bit of backlash on it because apparently we can't criticize anything that's not serving us because it's serving those that uphold this system and that are at the top of this hierarchy you know what i mean thus i understand where that fear comes from and unfortunately um th that is like backlash that we'll receive and it's funny it's it's so funny and the irony in it because we live in a democratic countries right where freedom of speech should be something that is valued however it's freedom of speech until you criticize the systems that are in place created by these governments in order to systematically oppress those who they don't want to hear it from anyways yeah, um, and and kind of like going into it, I, I I feel like we see a similar thing in the West where they're kind of like you know put on a pedestal, uh, these police officers and and a friend of ours like we since and we even see it in protest here, right? Um, I know in Malton, uh, just over the summer, an elder gentleman, uh, Mr. Ijaz Chaudhry was um was basically assassinated like within nine seconds. Um, by the police during a mental health check right and we see it here with the context and when we went to go protest we saw physical like you know uh sick uh police officers right with, with you know the the stad with like you know the the open beard just standing there on duty like they were doing like su such a righteous thing when they were defending you know a murderer and like you know and we have these institutions in place like even like the checks um the 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 checking for the police officers and their checks and balances or, or whatever it is, is done by the um, is done by like a citizen investigation uh, investigative unit, which is made out of like ex police officers and people that are, you know, usually more conservative. And so these police officers get to pass through their checks and, and balances as well. Um, but like in terms of this conversation, do you, how do you guys see it in the U.S.? Like in, in California, is is it a similar situation? Do you see a lot of like sick recruitments? And uh, Deep, we'll start off with you. Um, I mean, I was at the farmers protest a few a few weeks ago in L.A. We had one, and um, I was really excited that you know here we are. I'm wearing like green, you know. I'm really excited to you know, my, my kids had come from a BLM protest in the morning and now we're standing with farmers in the afternoon. It was like amazing. But one of the first trucks that I saw there was a big pickup truck with like, you know, Nishan Saab American flag and the Blue Lives Matter uh, flag, right? And so 
I don't think they need to do their recruiting. I mean, I think our colonial minds are already doing the work for them. Like we were colonized back home with this mentality that this is how we're going to get along with these colonizers. No, no, no. Like, and, 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 and we would be, we would have solidarity with, with more communities if we, you know, knew some of the histories behind how ugly, you know, these things are as Navjot, you know, pointed out very clearly, you know, this is all rooted in anti-blackness. This is, you know, your Mounties are rooted in anti-indigenous, you know, sentiment and settler colonialism. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the educational and the mental, you know, battle, we don't even have to let them recruit us. It's almost like we're ready to do the work for them. I kind of hate to say it and I, I don't, I hate to say this, but I see this a lot. A lot of individuals that I notice that go into policing have such a high level of aggression and they don't know what to do with it and they don't know how to kind of express it. And it's a way that they can have a career that um, kind of enables this um, toxic nature and where they're able to live in society as well to do it. And unfortunately, I see a lot of young brown men too that have uh, get angry and uh, don't know how to deal with this aggression as well. And therefore it's, it's a really easy way to kind of route a way to like come into the system. But deep, yeah. I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg sis, because you know, this, this profession has the highest level of drug and alcohol abuse. This profession has the highest level of domestic violence. So, I mean, I have friends who used to be cops who said that they would come home and drink every night because they had to, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a chicken and the egg issue. I don't think we're necessarily more violent than any other community. I don't think, no. Any, you know what I mean? It's this system that is re recapitulating this violence by violence, by a violence. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have this conversation around like, you know, yes, we can get to abolition, but what does a post-abolition world look like? And so they ask these questions and, you know, this is something that I kind of talked about before as well. Um, and, and I would love for you guys to kind of like t talk a little bit on that. What does like a post-abolition world look like for you guys? And Navjot, we can start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, I think to ask that question, like we have to go back a few steps, which is really where I think other folks engagement in this question is really important, which is like, what kind of world do, do the listeners here want to envision, right? What kind of humanity do we want to live in? What kind of relationships do we want to have with each other? How do we hold each other accountable? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a part of the question of like, what will a post- um, abolition world look like is what what kind of world do we want in the first place like we need everybody to actually think about you know what that world can look like because we're not there yet in in my opinion right a part of it and and you know deep and Shimshare can can comment on this is you know defunding the police is a step funding uh, mental health services is a step um, what I'm really interested in adding to the conversation is that abolition is also an embodiment um, it's how we police each other or lack thereof, right? There's so much policing that happens to each other, right? Um, that sometimes the police and these institutions don't need to do it to us, right? So uh, what does it mean to embody abolition? How do we relate to ourselves and others? So um, post-abolition world, I mean, I think of it as a collective vision, 
And the only way we're going to get to that collective vision is if we start talking about it. I think that's so beautiful that you said that. And it kind of, it, it comes back to this whole, it's crazy because everything is so intertwined and interconnected, especially in the society that we live in right now and how you kind of raised awareness on how um, even our communities like um, play into this whole anti-blackness, you know, issue that is associated with working with police. And it's like, we need to kill that level of racism within ourselves, you know, in order to even envision this uh, collective world that um, where we have uh, abolished um, uh, policing as it is. And I, I completely agree with you because how can we create a world when we don't have that type of connectiveness within our hearts already? And it's, it's, and it's, it's hard. And I do agree like with um, little steps such as defunding the police and kind of um, paying, uh, using that money in other facilities that would help um, individuals um, opposed to divide individuals would be a good start but it really starts with our mentality and how we have this level of uh hate and racism and anti-blackness and um all of these other underlying issues that are supporting this um systematic oppression yeah and i pulled a quote from angela davis for, for this which says you know educators organizers artists athletes intellectuals Everyday people can play a major role in introducing ways of imagining the future that are not tethered to the notion that the only only police can be effective guarantors of safety and that prisons alone can assure the security of people who populate the quote unquote free world. So I think there again, right, like the, the way that abolition is talked about in our society is so connected to police and prisons, which is absolutely true. Those are institutions that are inherently violent and antithetical to like the world we want to have. But the way we imagine, the way we relate to each other is also the, like, the fabric that's going to hold our communities together. And I think Siki really tells us a lot about how to reimagine a world. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Like you know, just echoing off what uh, Navjota said, like, it's about our collective participation and it's about actually centering that in, in, a, in a genuine way, which these societies don't do right now, right? You, like you're, you're voting every few years, um, you know, and it's a, it's a cycle and a pattern of abuse and it's always the next candidate, the next election, the next thing. And you're, you're constantly chasing this, like, you know, fix that never seems to quite, you know, come. Um, and the way like abolition is built is like a violent end to like the world, an immediate violent end. But it's not that at all. It's coming from a place of maturity and understanding that this system of oppression isn't going to be dismantled overnight. And it's not about that moment of dismantling. It's about actually imagining the alternative, what comes after that moment. Right. Um, and that requires our collective participation. It requires us uh, co-creating and coexisting, and that is one of the um, you know a sick idea at its core, like Sanjivalta, which is about our collective participation. It's about coexistence, about co-creation. It's not this false idea of unity and like you know kumbaya universalism. It actually is celebrating our differences and and seeing each other and hearing each other in a way that 
the society around us doesn't see us and doesn't hear us. We're literally dehumanized as people. And, and we only need to look at our siblings to see how society treats us. Because it's not just like, it's not our humanity that's being taken, right? It's also the humanity of those that are oppressing. And that's what, um, you know, this this whole thing is about, is about centering our humanity. And, and again, like for me, it's like a sick, like reading into these ideas, it, there's just, uh, this is stuff we know. This is stuff that we're taught. This is stuff that is important to us as sick. So like there's a huge there should be a huge investment from our community in uh, into these ideas and into these practices because they have been our practices for the longest amount of time we've only learned how to live like um you know white capitalists for a very short amount of time it's about for us it's about recentering to who we are yeah and and i think you hit the nail on the head right there um and i think that was like perfectly uh, put forth. Uh, when I think of, you know, abolition, I think of like, you know, everyone having a right to a life, um, everyone having the right to the same life. And I think that relates to me, that is Sikhi, because like, I, you know, in Sikhi, the first thing that you learn is this oneness that's within everyone else. And then, you know, and then you can like layer on these like systems of like policing or, you know, systemic racism and systemic oppression that, uh, I guess, like separates people into a different group and like, you know, divides this community that we're talking about and like, you know, the police or, um, you know, these kind of like soldiers of like capitalism, you can call them, I, I feel like are the, you know, they're, they're the dividers of and they're the tools uh, which are used to kind of divide us. And when we kind of participate in, in these structures, we're kind of like diluting the community itself. Um, I do want to talk, uh, I do want to ask in terms of like, you guys have already touched on it in six, uh, on Sikhi and abolition. Why is it so important that like six need to actually be actively fighting again against this? Like why, what is our role and why is it so important that we need to be doing it? Uh, you could come up with an ideological answer and I, and I, and I have that. So I'll give you that in a second. But a, a very basic reason is that our budgets are literally being swallowed up by by these militarized police forces the i mean so very very practically i know we're very 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 practical people and we we pride ourselves on that whatever government says that you can't have right oh we can't have this kind of healthcare, or or, or, or we can't have free parking here or we can't have childcare. everything that the government says you can't have you can't have because the money is going somewhere it's not it's not that we can't imagine that we can collect that money it's that that revenue is going to fund guns and tanks and shields and their pensions and when they get sued for police brutality to pay those lawsuits so so very very practically it's so that we can live better lives so that we can retire gracefully so that our children can have health care and have education blah 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 but from an ideological perspective in the very first uh set of verses of our guru granth Sahib, written by our baba nanak you know he talks about hukum and homet, right? And 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 homet is supposed to be, um, you know, something that is that is not part of the natural system. It's very human. I think homet is racism. I think homet is bigotry, right? Hukum, right, which comes from the divine source, which comes from the earth, right? That's about a flow. That's about a sanj. I mean, I was thinking when when uh, Navjot and Shamshir were talking, I was getting chills because like. 
we haven't talked about this ourselves, but we share so much of the same reflection on it. Sanj is my favorite word in Punjabi language, collectivity, the commons, you know, and, and to, to both these, their points, we have done this before. Our people have more history of doing it that way than we have with private property, than we have with colonialism. Um, so there's very, very practical reasons for doing it. There's very, very ideological reasons for doing it, for, for Sikhi reasons for doing it. And there's historical reasons for doing it. And, and I'm going to keep doing it until I have no more breaths left. I love everything you said deep. Oh my God. That like, that was such a good point. And like, I love the practicality that you put on it because ain't that the truth though? Like literally that's the truth. Like we can have, we can have the society as we and have almost everything. Everybody can have everything. There doesn't need to be this level of homelessness. This doesn't need to be this level of crime. The reason why people are put in positions where the police would even have to come in place is because of lack, lacking. And we are lacking because we are feeding into that system and uh, points but on points on points. Just think that abundance is so dangerous to somebody, to somebody sitting in some office in some suburb way up there right north of you know the gta that you know sitting on the lake somewhere looking out at their and they and they are worried that they don't have enough right that's mm -hmm. why we need to do this shit it's because it is it is it is it is anti-commons it is anti-sanji even in peel where we're from every you know tax every uh tax dollar that goes to you know the region of peel that goes to the city of brampton the mississauga, uh, mississauga or caledon 40 cents of every dollar is given to the Peel police. So that's like every dollar that is, you know, given 40 cents of it is donated to the police. That's almost half of the tax money going towards an institution that, you know, doesn't really serve us. And like, you know, we're in Peel. What are the, what are they doing? Giving out like tickets and, um, you know, like traffic tickets. Like there's obviously like other things, but like, you know, even then, like a lot of people and their experiences with the police have not been positive in Peel. Um, and so it, it is very heartbreaking to see that. But Navjot, sorry. No, no, please don't apologize. Um, I was just going to say that like we're we're not going to be free until all of us are free. So if we're thinking about liberation in like Khalistan or in India, right, for example, we need to think about the lands that we occupy. And if we are not fighting and organizing here in these spaces, then how do we expect liberation in the world, right? Um, and that's like, we, we can't imagine a world for, for just us. We have to imagine a world for everyone. And in order to do that, we really do have to center um, the folks who are most affected by like police violence and state violence in the lands that we occupy. So for the U.S., like that's, that means really centering Blackness and, and, and Indigenous folks. It really does. And a part of that that is like really listening to organizers, it means listening to people on the ground, because I think a part of the issue sometimes is that these kind of representation like politics and us as sick, sometimes we're like, we want equality for all. Like, you know, they, they become so wrapped up into like neoliberal politics where we're not actually doing a lot of the listening. We're not listening to folks on the ground, right? And I think that that's really important for us to do is think about how our liberation is really tied to the liberation of the most marginalized. And we really need to actively think about what does that look like? So for folks who are organizing for around the farmers protest, right? Like we got to think about how there are parallels between these things. And when I think about abolition, I also think about 
um, like the U.S. and the West's role in perpetuating different wars that disenfranchise people overseas. Because when I think about abolition, it's not just the U.S., it's not just Canada, it's not just the U.K. What about other countries? What about other places? What about other indigenous communities? What about environmental racism, right? What about um, how racial capitalism is, is stealing lands from, from indigenous people in Brazil? Like, I mean, all of these things, right? I think they're all in a thread together. And we really have to look at the full picture. And it's hard to do. It's a hard pill to swallow. Just just building off um, what Navjota is saying is one of the most common ideas that Sikhs talk about is Sarbati Bapala. It's something that you hear everywhere. And it's often translated as the, the quote unquote, the welfare of humanity. But it's not just limited to human beings. Um, Sarbati Bapala is about the welfare of all elements of Akal Puruk's creation. Um, it's everything um, within this biosphere and beyond. It's about our relationship with the earth as much as it is um, about our relationship with other human beings. And that means building power, right? Like Sarbatapala also speaks to power and how we get to define these relationships is not coming from this position of us being victims and we're seeking the welfare of humanity as victims because we have no power of our own. It's about reimagining those relationships. Yeah, and, and I definitely agree with that. Um, something that I always like, and just a really quick tangent, something that I always say is like, I studied environment and urban sustainability, but the the way that kind of like the environment and our relationship with the environment was instilled within me is so much more different from what we're taught in school. In school, it, it, for, for, for us, it's very like, it's kind of like ingrained in, the, ingrained in us, uh, ingrained within us. It's almost this oneness, right? Like we are the elements around us, the elements are within us as well. And so we're kind of like an extension of, you know, our environment. Whereas when you look at it from a the, the lens like the you know I guess the white scholarly lens that we were taught from it's very much transactional right like we have to take care of the environment so that we can live on it and ex like you know exploit it for another couple of years and I think that that's really what does differentiate us instead of this oneness and so I, I definitely do agree with that but on that note we have come to the end of our show I wanted to ask you guys if, where can people find you if, if they want to reach out to you and, and want to um, get to know more and ask you more questions, if you're comfortable with it? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Deep Sing LA, and on Instagram, Deep in these streets with underscores in between. But please get involved with Black Lives Matter uh, Canada and Toronto. Sandy Hudson is a, is a friend of mine, and uh, she's a law student here, six Punjabis, South Asians. Get, in get involved with Black Lives Matter uh, Canada. Um, you can find me on um, all social media platforms, Anandpur underscore exile, except for TikTok. I don't use that, but yeah. You're missing out. TikTok is TikTok is where it's at now. Um, and Navjot, where can folks find you? Yeah, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Bike the Wind. Um, yeah, go ahead and follow that. Feel free to ask any questions. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. This has been such a blessed conversation and we would love to have you guys back. I do hope the listeners that are listening, this gave you a little bit more insight and more understanding to the depth of what um, abolition means. And hopefully this will create and elevate the conversations that you have and therefore come from a place of oneness, collectiveness and love. And that's the goal at the end of the day. Um, this is The Element and you guys are listening to us on News Talk Saga 960 AM.